I'm hoping that if you were with us last week, you might have come this morning with just a little extra anticipation. Uh, if you don't know, last week we started a series entitled Questions You Might Be Afraid to Ask. And so I led things off with a question uh, that had come across my path just recently uh, that was a little bit one of those things that you might be afraid to ask. And I told you, I have no idea what I'm going to preach on next week. It's up to you. Uh, I want you to give me your questions that you're afraid to ask, and then I'm going to do my best to choose uh, a really good one each week for this series, and then give a talk on it. So uh, that's what we did last week. And you'll notice in your bulletins, you've got these little pieces of paper that say questions uh, that I'm kind of afraid to ask. And if you have one of those, particularly if it's about faith or the church, um, not me personally, although, hey, whatever, you can ask the question. It just probably won't make a whole sermon about me. Um, so, but go ahead and write it down. Maybe something will be sparked in your mind as we talk today, as you hear this sermon. And I, it very well might become the topic for a sermon next week or the week after. Does that sound fun? So that's in your hands. The sermons are in your hands. And I love it. One of my favorite things to do is to talk to people about things that bother them about faith. So uh, you send me your questions, and I, the hardest thing will probably be to choose which question. Uh, so this week... The topic is the one that I got the most submissions for last week. Uh, I'll read you some of the cards that came in to sort of give you a taste of what people were asking. So this was the number one topic submitted last week was this. Why do so many Christians seem to miss the point? Another way someone put it was, why does the church so often struggle and end up on the wrong side of history when the message of Jesus is so clear? And here's another one that says, how can people who claim to be Christians be so mean to others? Look down on them. Take away their health care. Tell them they are hated for who they are. Take away their food stamps. Support war, even nuclear war. Be so racist. Exclude the alien. So the questions there, I think, are all hitting at a similar theme that the first person said really concisely. And that is, why do so many Christians seem to miss the point? And I'm sure a lot of us here can relate to this question. Uh, Think of it this way. Have you at any time ever heard a news story, read online, saw a post from a famous Christian or church or Christian organization that did or said or stood for something that made you cringe or sad or angry? And maybe even you said to yourself, if this is what it means to be called a Christian, I don't know if I want to have anything to do with that name. You know, I love Jesus. I believe in him. I will follow him. But that is not Jesus. They've missed it. Anyone relate to that? I know the answer is yes, because I've had a lot of conversations where people have said similar things to me. But before I go any further, I really, I have to admit that this is a, this is a particularly tough question to answer in a sermon without being or coming off as judgmental. You know, that's one of my greatest fears in tackling this topic this week. Because to say that someone has missed the point is also to somehow say that you can see more clearly than they do. Like, for example, speaking today, I figured it out and those other Christians missed it. But the truth is, no matter where we find ourselves at any point in history, 
There is no guarantee that in 100 years, maybe even just 50 years, our grandkids or our grandkids' kids are going to look back at me and the sermon I'm preaching today and think, what was he thinking? He totally missed it. There's this huge thing about Jesus, and he's just sliding right by it. So I'm well aware that preaching a sermon about how other people miss it is not something I would ever choose, and it's very difficult. And I'm hesitant to be too confident in my own ability to sort of stay above the fray. And so what I want to do is I want to ask for your forgiveness in advance, if I might. You know, some of the things uh, that we've seen some Christians supporting or doing or not doing, some of them, they make me angry. I'm a human being. I have my own opinions, my own perspectives, and sometimes I just can't believe what I see. And I'm afraid, really afraid, honestly, that that is going to come through in anything that I say today. Because I've had my own moments of shock and disbelief. I want to share one with you, and I could be completely wrong about this. Maybe someday I'll see it. But I had an experience similar to what many of you have had over the years. In 2014, when an organization that I really respect that's done a lot of great work in the world, a Christian organization, the 10th largest charity in the United States, World Vision announced publicly that they would no longer discriminate in their hiring practices, and they said they would begin to hire people in same-sex marriages. And here's what really got me. Within 48 hours, in protest, at least 15,000, 15,000, but probably more like 19,000 Christians dropped their sponsorship of children that they had established through World Vision. Now think about that for a minute. These sponsorships were set up to provide things like clean water, food, shelter, education, medicine to poor children who probably would not have access to any of those things without the sponsorship. Now, if you know the HR policies of our church, you know that we have no problem with the move that World Vision wanted to make. But can you imagine, in your wildest dreams, even if you think that Jesus would have a problem with this change, that Jesus... Jesus would take away food, water, shelter, medicine, and education from poor children because World Vision might hire a gay person. Jesus. This blew my mind. And it made me angry. And I thought to myself, I thought to myself, If this is what it means to be a Christian, I don't want to be that. I don't want to be that. What are some of the most basic things people know about Jesus? He cares for the poor. How does this happen? How can we miss the point so tragically? So I hope, I hope, I hope, with the big, giant slice of humble pie. You can tell I feel things, right? I'm a human being. Things bother me. But I hope with a big piece of humble pie that we together can take a crack at this question. Because the scriptures actually have examples of people like this. And often people 
maybe even like us, earnest people, confessing people, religious people who miss the mark in terrible ways. There's actually a group, religious people, churchgoers, serious Bible people who give money away, who pray, they're zealous for the teachings of scriptures, they're committed, they're convicted. Obedience to God is of primary importance to them. Folks who were waiting for the Messiah to come, faithful people. And in the stories of the life of Jesus, they're the bad guys. Over and over and over. They're the ones who are always fighting with Jesus, speaking out against him. They get him arrested and put to death. They're the church people. And they completely miss the point. You may have heard of them. They're known as Pharisees. And at one point, Jesus tells them a story. And I feel like in this story, we can see some things that hopefully can help us hold on to some humility and avoid falling into some of the traps that we may rightly or wrongly be seeing all around us. Let's look at this. This is in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Going on to verse 11. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together, with all, got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. And after he'd spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his feed, fields to feed pigs. And he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. I'll set out, go back to my father, and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field, and when he came near the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come home, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry, refused to go in, so his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. You never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. My son, the father said, you're always with me, and everything I have is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Now, it's a great story. You probably, even if you didn't grow up in the church, you probably heard a version of this story before. And when you hear it, who do you think this story is for? Who should it inspire or challenge? And I think this story has been told again and again over the years. It actually has a nickname. It's now called the parable of the prodigal son. And prodigal means wild or lavish. So it's told and remembered often as the story of the wild younger son who runs off and lives this crazy life and then is welcomed home by a gracious father. And that's true. That's beautiful, and that's part of the story, and we should never let go of that. Paintings have been brilliantly made to illustrate that image. It's beautiful. Let's hold on to it. But that's not the main point of the story. How do I know that? Well, I know that because basic storytelling 101 is that you put the home run at the end of the story, not at the beginning or the middle. The whole story of the younger brother happens and wraps up before you get to the climax of the story. The climax is with the older brother. Did you notice that? It's meanwhile, it's like all set up for the story of the older brother. And if you have any doubt that this is actually primarily a story about the older brother, remember who Jesus is telling this story to. He's just finished talking to the sinners and tax collectors. He stepped away and turned his attention to the people who are criticizing him, the Pharisees. The story isn't told to a bunch of younger brothers, the wild livers. It's told to a surrounding crowd of older brothers who are following all the rules and doing all the right things. It's a beautiful story about the open arms of our Father in heaven. But the open arms are headed to two different kinds of people, or two people are more alike than they realize. It's a story mainly to religious people, to challenge, encourage, inspire them. And I think what you see in this story what we may not realize at the beginning is that both brothers are guilty of the same mistakes, the same sin as each other. The older brother is guilty of the same sin as the younger brother. It just presents itself differently. What do I mean? Well, the younger brother wants to take control of his life. So he basically sort of wishes his father was dead so he could have his inheritance now, and he rejects him. He leaves. He runs away to run his own life, to find happiness on his own terms. The older brother does the same thing. Now, how could that be? Because he seems to make exactly the opposite decisions of his younger brother. And he does, but with the same end or goal in mind. He wants control of his own life, too. He just tries to obtain it through rigorous obedience, See, in his mind, if he follows the rules, his father will have to bless him. And he's using his obedience as a way to manipulate his father, to use his father, to make him bless him. And in a different way, he rejects the father. He doesn't want the father. He wants the father's stuff. 
And he's using obedience, following the rules, because he thinks if he does, his father will have to give him the stuff. He's taking control in a different way, on his own terms. So both brothers are trying to take control. But in the process, and this is key, they're both losing what they really need. And I think this is what people remember about this story. They lose connection to grace. Grace. Grace is powerful, life-changing, empowering. But we only experience it through some point of need. So notice when the younger brother comes back home, he's prepared to admit his need. He says, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And what does he receive? Grace. Even before he says anything, his father sees and runs to him, puts his arm around him, kisses him, throws an amazing party. The life he was trying to create on his own, his father gives to him as a gift. That's grace. And that's what we risk when we try to control everything in our lives. When we take control, we lose grace. And this is how I think we can end up missing the whole point. Like the older brother who won't go into the party. And there's just a couple reasons why. And I don't even pretend to think I understand the whole thing, but I think we lose touch with grace. Or when we lose touch with grace, moralism pushes out love. What do I mean? Moralism is a process by which people, you, me, anyone, tries to nail things down. Nail it down. Figure everything out. Take control by knowing all of the rules and following them to the T, religiously. And from a moralistic point of view, you know the right answer to every question. And you can use those answers to be pure. And you can follow all the rules so well that you no longer need grace. Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. I've done everything right. I've mastered the system. I've checked all the boxes. Give me what I'm owed. That's not grace. And taken to its natural end, moralistic folks, and that could be any of us on any given day, unwittingly, accidentally end up trading the experience of grace for the theology of grace. So we can figure out what we have to believe to be covered by grace. Yay us! without ever actually experiencing real grace. Why would we? We've figured out what we need to know. We don't need anything else. We know how grace saves us, so I don't actually have to experience it. We put ourselves in the center, in control. But when we lose grace, we also lose connection to the heart of the father. And we can see that in this parable. The older son is completely out of touch with the heart of God. 
he loses touch with love. <laughs> when we lose grace, at least in some way, we lose the ability to love. Because being right becomes more important than being loving. And when that's the case, we can make some horrible choices and hurt lots of people. When being right is more important than being loving. So this is one way that earnest, faithful, sincere, Jesus-professing people can do horrible things in the name of their faith. This is how we can take medicine away from poor, starving children. Because we know what's right and someone is crossing that line. I think we can also see in this passage another way we can kind of what happens when we lose touch with grace, and that is that the world becomes us and them. What do I mean? Well, if you look at, look, just look at how the older brother responds to his father. He says this, but when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, dot, dot, dot. Do you notice that? This son of yours, not my brother, this son of yours. And the father corrects him later. You know what he says? This brother of yours. Not my brother. See, grace is what connects us to each other. And when we experience grace, we're in touch with our own weakness, our own imperfection, our own humanity. And so we see ourselves in other people. We see the same flaws in us that we see in other people. It's so much harder to judge people, to make them different from us, to other them. Because they're our brothers and sisters. Your brother, your sister, not your son, that son of yours, even more distance. You see, moralism is about drawing a line that determines who is in and who is out. Who are the good people? Who are the bad people? And the older brother, in his mind, is the good people, and his brother is the bad. So he can't be his brother anymore. And when you start making that distinction, we start to make certain people other. We start to judge them and can't connect to them as brothers and sisters. Then we also don't have to treat them in the same way as people that we see as in. Suddenly, it's okay to treat them differently, poorly, oppressively. But there's no us and them in this parable. Zero. There's just one family. Some people are lost. Some people are being found. But they're all connected. They're all one family. told you my biggest fear today was, and I, maybe I am being, and I'm so sorry, just being judgmental myself. I, I feel things. I get angry about things. 
everybody in this room probably thinks somebody gets something wrong, misrepresents who Jesus is. So it's really a challenge for me to avoid that. So a question I ask myself is, how do I know if I'm doing this? If I'm sort of sliding into my own version of living like an older brother, like what does that look like? I think there's some things here that can be really helpful to us that the older brother does. It shows he's off track. So if we can notice these things in our own attitudes and our own perspectives, we have an opportunity to change, to correct, to pause, to take a step back. So let's just quickly look at a few of these. Signs that we may be missing the point. First one I noticed here is this. When life doesn't go my way, I feel bitter. When life doesn't go my way, I feel bitter. It says the older brother became angry and refused to go in to the party. Wouldn't go in. Fantastic, awesome, amazing party. Would not go in. And this is important because life is not easy. And Jesus uses a party to describe life with the Father in this instance. And so I think we should keep that in mind. Like that is supposed to be a part of it, if not the, the overall, this is the normal baseline, is life with Jesus, life with the Father. That's where the good stuff is, and that's where you experience it. But Jesus also said things like, a seed needs to fall to the ground and die so it can produce many seeds, or in this life you will face trouble, things like that. So following Jesus, although that's where the good stuff is, doesn't shield us from pain or tragedy or suffering. So we're going to feel some of those things. And when those things come along, if we don't expect this, we won't feel just sad or disappointed. We'll feel betrayed and bitter. And bitterness, I think, is a sign of older brother syndrome. I did what I was supposed to do, God, but you didn't. You owe me better. but we can't control God with our actions. And if we're becoming bitter, it may be a sign that we're trending away from grace, seeing the gifts around us, the blessings, what's available to us. The Father said, all this is yours as a gift. And we're trending towards some form of self-dependence that disconnects us from grace. Second, another sign might be, I feel like I'm living out of joyless duty. I have been slaving for you, the older brother says. Duty, duty will kill your relationship with God. I think the hope in following Jesus is that we know that we always get more of God, and that's always a good thing. And that's where we can anchor our joy. When duty becomes our motivation, we dishonor God. It's like saying, I'd rather be out there where the younger brother is. He's really living life. But because I have to, I'm going to sacrifice the fun of life to follow you. No, 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 no. That's missing the point. That's the opposite. What you see in this parable is a party. The party wasn't with the younger brother out there. He ended up in a really terrible situation. The party was with the father. And it can feel like we're sacrificing, but that's what faith is, because in the end, what we get is the best. That's the hope. 
There are no martyrs in the kingdom of God. He's the prize. And we may not feel it every day. We may have seasons that are dark, nights of the soul. But life, the deepest joys, what we're looking for, true happiness, is right by the Father's side in his right hand. And the word should is the death knell for faith. It's my joy to follow because in you is life. That's what we're hoping for. A third sign. I'm not sure of the Father's love. I'm not sure of the Father's love. Notice that the older brother says, you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. You never threw me a party. Look, this is a tough one because if you don't feel loved by God, the last thing I want to do is pile on top of that, make you feel bad about not feeling loved by God. That's not what I'm saying. But I would like to suggest that the embrace that the younger brother experiences in this parable is available to you and to me. That's the heart of God for you, illustrated. And he doesn't want love to be an abstract idea or a theological concept or something that you read about. He wants you to feel it, to know it, to taste it, to experience it. And if you haven't felt it, if it's not an ongoing reality in your life, it's so easy to just slip right into the older brother mode and start trying to earn the favor and love of God. Or we don't feel it to turn to some sort of wild living alternative that promises assurance or escape but really just brings you down in the end. So this is worth asking God for to experience. This, but while he was still a long way off, while she was still a long way off, His father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, ran to his child's side, threw his arms around him, and gave a kiss. So if you're feeling any of those things, don't feel bad, but just say, hey, whoa, maybe something could shift in my life. And if you're feeling these things, let me just offer one suggestion on part, at least part of a way back from this. I'm calling the way back is this. This is, this is counterintuitive. It's not easy to do, but I'll give it to you. <clears throat> Boast about your weaknesses. I'm like, how do I come back from this? I don't think there's one way. I mean, for some of you, like experiencing the love of God, it just might come in a quiet place of reflection and meditating on scripture or in a worship setting where singing songs or out in nature or when some, you, you just see God somewhere. But This is one way that's described specifically in the Bible to connect to grace. If you notice in our story, the younger brother admits that he's messed up. That's a great start. God will respond to that. He'll run to that before you even get a chance to get it out of your mouth. But you can actually lean into this more actively. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, one of the early great leaders of the church who planted all kinds of churches and wrote half the Christian scriptures said this about himself in a conversation that he had with Jesus. But Jesus said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Seriously, 
tell people when you mess up. This isn't easy. I don't always do this very well. What relationships do you have in your life where you can do this? I'm not saying you have to go on Facebook. You can. Until some people do. <laughs> but what relationships do you have in your life that are close? You can do this. Just as a little tease, in September we're going to be starting uh, to talk a lot about building the type of relationships in our lives that we need that can make a difference. This is part of it. Keeps us grounded, keeps us connected to where we need to grow, and more importantly, keeps us connected to grace. Let's pray. Ah, oh, Jesus, I don't feel equipped to tell other Christians <laughs> where they're missing the point. So we all this morning ask for grace. I think we're in a season when we are seeing lots of things that trouble us, that don't make sense, uh, that don't line up with seemingly the basic things we know about Jesus. So in this season, I pray you would connect us even more deeply to our own weakness. Not to feel bad about ourselves, but so that we can know how deeply we're loved. And experience that in ways that will help us be compassionate towards other people. So that their lives can change. Help us not to draw lines around ourselves. And make, our, make us the people who are in and those others, the people who are out. Your grace is bigger than that. And we ask for more of that in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you're on the worship team, please come on up. Um, and also, um, I want to invite a representative from our prayer team to come forward. Prayer team prays before the service, and one of the things they do is they try and make space for the Holy Spirit. Because sometimes they'll share with him impressions that might be for you. So... Mauricio is going to come up and share those things. Uh, good morning, everyone. Um, so as Brad said, the prayer team meets before the service um, to pray, um, to hear God's word. Um, though lately, for me, um, kind of the opposite of waiting for God's God to speak to me. I've been really asking him uh, what can be done about injustice? What can be done when you see something wrong? Um, and how can you